and welcome to another edition of the Capiche Filmcast. Stephen Barry here, joined by my usual fellow Bond aficionados, remotely, of course, for another thrilling, tantalising episode of the Bond Daft Project. Film 19, The World Is Not Enough, is this week's film. I'm looking forward to this one, guys. But of course, before we get into that, I'll introduce the guests, my guests, the group, Francis Murphy. Yo, yo, yo. Steve McCall. A very good afternoon to you all. And Gordon Webster. Good afternoon, uh, Mr. Barry. How are we all feeling, guys? How's the the lockdown update coming, Fran? Let's start with you. <clears throat> Excuse me, becoming very lazy and uh, sleeping on the couch all the time. So one day bleeds into the next. Um, other than that, I get I get you guys to cheer for me again because I've passed my course. So you, you all have to clap and cheer. Unless you don't want to do it um, uh, a second time. (laughs) That's terrible. Uh, Thank you, Mr. Mr. Barry there for for wrecking that little bit of celebration. Very not recording I'll do a post uh, clap and then pretend that that was them clapping at the end. Like use a, um, would you call it like a stock stock sound file of a a room cheering? (laughs) Like an auditorium of a whole room clapping. A whole football stadium, 50,000 people clapping. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds appropriate. But yeah, I'll be I'll be doing remote casts for the foreseeable future actually because I'm heading down to the Scottish borders. Um, I won't go into too much detail about where I'm going and what I'm doing. You know, obviously, the line of work it's going to be not really the kind of thing you talk about, is it? Too much, like, yeah. especially not on on a podcast. But um, it's going to be fun. Quite excited. So that's the news. Good stuff. Wow! Congratulations officially from the Capiche Filmcast. Thank you, everybody. Uh, congratulations. Congrats, yep. Dan. And, of course, as well as that, you've just been binge-watching television shows. We've spoke about it at length during this week. You've watched the entire Game of Thrones in about four days or something. Yep, I did indeed. Wow. You did the whole I... thing? Yep. Holy crap. <laughs> Basically, for, like, everything was to the side. Food drink, sleep, everything. Basically, I just sat and watched it. How many days? I was probably exaggerating. Was it about six days? Was it a season and a half a day or something? I think so. I mean, as it was getting towards the end, I was just watching... I was... I was so into it. I was just watching more and more. Do you know what I mean? Like, there was less sleeping (laughs) and more just sitting watching it just endlessly. Um, But it was compulsive. I don't know whether to congratulate your medical attention. (laughs) That is... (laughs) Considering the this extent of that, see, that's incredible. I'm shocked. It's going to be almost a world record, I think. But uh, yeah, it was great. further than I got. I, I highly recommend it. It was it was very 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 good. Maybe not watching it so close together like that, but yes, as a show, I think you can now see why there was such such a buzz around that show. Mm-hmm. It, it is quite amazing storytelling. It's incredible, incredible. Uh, yeah, good stuff. All right then, Gordon, we move on to you. How's things been? All right, uh, nothing as exciting, just chilling, working, um, still working from home, um, exercising, trying to enjoy the sunshine, um, trying to get a few films in. Um, I was going to mention before, I saw Minority Report last night, which I recall you mentioned, which I, oh, yeah. I enjoyed a lot. Not been a Is big there... sci-fi fan, but I, I, I quite enjoyed that, kind of complex. Mm-hmm. Was that your first time watching it? Yeah, yeah. I'd heard good things about it. And, oh, do you know, I watched the, the night before, I watched 
a film called Enigma. I don't know if you've heard of that. And the director was one Michael Apted, who also is doing the film we're doing today, The World's yeah. Not Enough. And so it was starring Dougie Scott and Kate Winslet, uh, a World War II British made thing. I think Mick Jagger was actually involved in the production of it too, but um, directed by Michael Apted. It, it was a fun film to watch. Mm. Um, oh, and John Barry did the music, his very last film score. <laughs> That's a twofold in the Bond connections there. It's, uh... <laughs> I, I swear I just stumble across them. Was there any connections in Minority Report? Max von Sydow, remember, I remember you mentioned him and it's stuck in my head. <laughs> but there's other, um, there's a good cast, Colin Farrell's in that. Um, what else did I watch? There was, uh, oh, usually I'm watching at least two films per weekend. I sometimes squeeze one in during the week as well. But yeah, oh, and I've been listening to quite a few of the, the Bond soundtracks as I do, a few new discoveries on YouTube. Of some of the films where they you could own on the the official soundtracks on Spotify and CD, there was often ones missing, like Doctor No, Spy Who Loved Me. There's hardly anything there, but I've discovered the pretty much the full scores then, which was cool. I was driving. I've started this thing like driving across the other side of the, the the water to get my messages, and you know when the weather's been really hot, and I was just absolutely blasting the On Her Majesty's Secret Service one from Spotify. The windows down, let everyone hear it. Why not? Why not? Yeah, I love that main title theme for that film. Oh, I love the music, and you know, I um, I didn't love it as much when we reviewed it, but I've been, yeah, I've been taking a real liking to some of the the Bond scores. Something's just passing the time. I mean, there's not, there's really not a lot we can do at the moment, but I'm I'm okay. I'm surviving. Okay, excellent. Good to hear you're surviving, Steve. How have you been? Yeah, I have. I've been good actually. I've gone from having a sort of horrible week where I've worked six out of seven days to this week where I've only been working two days, uh, and it sort of coincided with the weather getting wet and rubbish. So I've basically spent the time kind of plowing through Netflix's uh, documentary section. I'm partial to a wee documentary. So what I've seen this week: great documentary called Thirteenth, which. Uh, basically documents the sort of criminalization and discrimination of black people since the abolition of slavery and how it's kind of being done by stealth. Absolutely fascinating piece of work. Um, I've been plowing through a series called Trial by Media, which shows the insanity of media, uh, particularly sort of television media over in the US. Here in the UK, if, uh, if someone gets arrested, for example, you are not allowed to broadcast or publish anything about them until the trial. And even then, you're only allowed to talk about what's been said in court that day. In America, I didn't realize the extent of this, but the amount of analysis and sort of discussion that goes on about a criminal case before it happens is incredible. It kind of, it veers from terrifying to hilarious in its sort of ridiculous. Uh, They have an entire channel called Court TV, where you can sit and watch court cases, which again, I didn't know existed, but sounds fascinating so i've enjoyed i've enjoyed sort of plowing my way through that and i've been keeping up with my usual dose of spying by watching my way through the bbc series spooks i'm about to start series eight of ten and it's incredible so that's been my fortnight yeah that's that's pretty pretty awesome man uh the the court stuff in america that is yeah scary um you, you do forget how different other countries like America, you always think maybe the, the similarities, but 
They have a, a emphasis on the drama of court, don't they? Because you can watch them. Everyone can watch them. Whereas it's only reported on in Britain. So there's less of a sort of posturing in, in court that in Britain that there is, you do see in America where it is a big, everyone's, you know, hour in court is like a big drama. It seems like it's, it almost takes away from it. Yeah, it's their First Amendment thing. Obviously, to them, that's we've got freedom of speech. We can say what we want. And what that translates to is that you can say literally anything around a criminal trial and whether and if that uh, prejudices the jury in any way, then so be it. That's freedom of speech. So yeah. it's, it's, it's the American way. It's, it's fascinating from a UK point of view. I love it. I'm a geek yeah. like that. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, for myself, what have I been up to, actually? Um, nothing, nothing crazy, nothing extraordinary. Uh, television show wise uh, we finished Line of Duty I think the week before we started Killing Eve I must say I'm a little disappointed I don't think we're going to finish it um, three episodes in and it didn't grip me uh, I don't know has anyone seen Killing Eve? No, I've, I've not I've never really watched it it's written by um, Phoebe Waller-Bridge who has been part of the screenwriting team for No Time to Die or she might have done this. I don't know if she was drafted to assist or she actually wrote the screenplay but she is part of it. And she's obviously done Fleabag. That's her, her main uh, piece that she's known for. But Killing Eve is the other one. Um, and I thought I would really love it. I thought it would be up my alley but I'm, I don't know if it's because I know that well, I won't go into spoilers but it feels like what I think could have been done over one series has been sort of like... I suppose it's based on a book, though, so maybe I'm just... I'm ignorant to what the whole thing's about, but it feels like it, it could be a lot of filler, and it just... I'm not... I wasn't getting a, a grip of the characters. I wasn't really excited by it, so I was a little disappointed with that. I have just started The English Game on Netflix, which is quite interesting, and, and within one episode I'm hooked already, I can't wait to watch more. And that's essentially the kind of origins of football, um, and it's t- t- told from the mid, is it mid to late 1800s? Essentially, it, was a, it wasn't a, a game for professionals, it was English noblemen that played it, and the two, there's two Scotsmen from, I think, Partick, that played for Partick Thistle, professionals, were paid by one of the university heads to try and play for the team and kind of bring a bit of skill to the game that that hadn't been seen at that time. And so, yeah, it's it's fascinating already. Within one episode, I'm, I'm, I'm loving it. And that just shows the difference, I suppose. I would have thought at that time people would um, I know. fight and um, life would revolve around football, you know. Don't know anyone like that, but yeah. <laughs> it's 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 an interesting show that it shows the power because it wasn't um, paid for by audiences I don't think at the time or our teams weren't paid for but at the thought of um, the team they, the, I think it's the mill is about to go under they're about to lose a lot of money and so the workers who play the play the game the team would have to to stop playing it's they 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 they're about to. They, they can't they can't play anymore but then they they sort of they offer them up as a charity for people to pay in and help the team keep going and it sort of was the first time that it, it showed that the power of it was common people and people that were the lower classes that were really excited because they needed it they needed to support the team they had it, it did so much for them 
I think, and it was just kind of interesting to see that, as well as just seeing, like it starts off and it shows you them all playing the way they played the game uh, at the earliest days before tactics and the sort of the way that you would play it now. Uh, it's like a schoolboys. Like I remember playing like that in primary one or two, whenever we first started playing, where everyone just runs to the ball, like fifteen players surrounding the ball. <laughs> like it looks ridiculous because they don't know the the sort of why you have to space out and learn the passing game and learn that it's all about movement and pacing and space and not about just trying to get the ball. <laughs> and nowadays, they're just still big girls and boys as the footballers. Uh, well. Yeah, it's it's a, it was a different a different time, but yeah. Anyways, let not to deviate on that. <laughs> We're here, of course, for Bond film nineteen. Michael Apted, as you mentioned, Gordon, the new director. This is a film released. The world is not enough in nineteen ninety nine. The third for Pierce Brosnan, and the first film released under Metro Goldwyn Mayer. Yeah, this is a continuation of the the Bond series. Uh, from I think it's a, probably I I think I remember it more similar to Tomorrow Never Dies in tone and style, sort of slight silliness that continues. I think with this with this film, um, this was a film at this point I was entrenched in my Bond fanaticism at this point as a kid. Uh, I had a couple of years to then digest all the other films and really knew uh, I was familiar with the franchise at this point. I did go and see this in the cinema uh, and was excited. At the time, I loved it. And I haven't really watched it a lot since, so I'm intrigued to see where it where it comes. Um, do you guys, you've guys all seen this, I take it? Yeah. I don't think I have, actually. No, I know this mostly for the soundtrack because I was obsessed with the, uh, the theme song from this by Garbage when I was a kid. I loved it when it came out. But I don't yeah. think I saw the film. Wow, that's amazing. Am I, it's funny that you... you Listen to the soundtrack, I suppose, without the context of the film, or I suppose you don't have context for a Bond theme, but yeah, that's amazing. It's just very, it kind of very much makes me think of the of uh, kind of Britpop era. Um, just uh, in my memories, it's very much, you know, start of high school, very, very start of high school, kind of tail end of Britpop. I kind of remember, like, I think a game came out for the N64, didn't it? It wasn't as good as Goldeneye was. No, no. They, I as Icon was a different developer uh, that did it. They tried to emulate the style of Goldeneye. It did not work. They didn't have the same touch or the same. Just shows the difference of the comp- one the composer of the soundtrack of Goldeneye. There was nothing like that. Um, it was very true to the film, though, from what I remember, and great attention to detail. Give them that. I, think, I, I wouldn't say it was a bad game. I still enjoyed it. I played a lot of the the multiplayer. I think it had bots in it, which was a first for the time. That I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, which I loved about it, so because Perfect Dark hadn't come out at that point, so um, maybe it had. Maybe I'm not sure, but yeah, um, yeah. This is a film that I, I I always thought at the time this was my second favorite of Brosnan's films, but I wonder with Tomorrow Never Dies, I enjoyed it more than I, I remembered. If uh, if it will just slightly fall beneath that, but be interesting to to see. Um, before we go into it, uh, a couple of things. I was doing my basic research for this film, which is usually just a scan on Wikipedia. Um, Barbara Broccoli's influence is clearly coming through at this point. They were really thinking about women, the the way that the women were portrayed and and the characters and the performances. She was actually trying to find directors and writers that would try and get a better performance and character for women, which was quite 
interesting that, that I mean, 1999 doesn't feel like the sort of time when that was starting but maybe it was I suppose that was after girl power and the Britpop era and things like that um, so uh, I don't know if the film executes as well as it tried that's that's maybe something to, to point to note but the plot Gordon I'll let you go into that but I'm, it was about uh, oil you want to set us up on the plot for this one Sure, Bond is assigned by M to protect the daughter of a billionaire with personal connections to M after a terrorist attack on him by a man called Victor Zocas, or as he's otherwise known, Renard, played by Robert Carlyle. And there's it, Bond is assigned to protect um, this billionaire's daughter, and there is a plot emerges about a plan to dominate the oil market from the Caspian Sea to the west to take over the one remaining pipeline. Also, alongside Robert Carlyle, very versatile actor, we've also got Sophie Marceau playing Electra King, Denise Richards, Dr. Christmas Jones, and there's, uh, I think by this stage as well, um, we were starting to notice there was there was um, established people and the crew that, you know, were taking over the mantle really well from their predecessors, like David Arnold. This is his second film doing the music. I think he went on to do about four or five. By this time, Peter Lamont was kind of the new Ken Adam, if you like, with these glorious sets as production designer. And this, yeah, like you said, Michael Apted directing. There was a novelization of this film as well, which I, I had. I don't know what happened to it. It was the. It was by Raymond Benson, who also wrote a few of the, a few of his own original novels. And the thing you got to remember is, yeah, yeah. Again, we, we'd sort of exhausted the Ian Fleming novels by this point, so they're going in with an original story, which isn't an easy thing to do. There was a real, from what I always remember, is there's a real kind of pre-millennium feel to this film with it. It'd been made in 1999. It was also, see, this is Brosnan's third, and if we look back at the the Bond actors, usually the third film is the one that really cements them. You know, like Connery, Goldfinger, Moore, uh, Spy Who Loved Me, Daniel Craig, Skyfall. I mean, they're all films that did really well. And by this time, pretty much Pierce Brosnan was James Bond in everyone's eyes from... It doesn't, sometimes seems to get a bit of criticism now, but at the time he was James Bond. Oh, definitely. I think the games helped his popularity just as much as the films as well. Um, but you're right, uh, the, he was, he was the, he was my Bond growing up. He was our Bond, I suppose, at the time, you know. Um, yeah. The first one that I saw in the cinema as well. I never, I don't recall seeing Tomorrow Never Dies, but when I was really starting to get into the Bond franchise, it was in the noon, so it was probably about two years after it really came out. But and then I think I saw Die Another Day, and yeah. I've not I've not actually seen many of them in the cinema now. I think about it. Yeah, wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be fun. I think you would. Well, not now because cinemas aren't open, but they they probably could have had a, a good rerun if they wanted. The Bond films are are big, you know, I think they're event films. I think if they decided, run Goldfinger, Spy Who Loved Me, Goldeneye, I mean, I would certainly go back to see them. They did that, I think, even, well, they've definitely done it quite a lot in the US, but there was one stage you could see from Rush With Love, and somehow I missed it, which I'm now annoyed about, but it'd be good if they continued to do that when the time comes. 
Uh, yep. Right. Okay. Uh, we'll uh, we'll leave it at that. We've set the film up. Uh, I'm looking forward to this one to reevaluating it. Does it uh, before we finish as well? Actually, this was this was filmed all quite a lot of different locations. Scotland being one of them, which is we'll get to enjoy. Uh, and yeah, this this should be fun. Pierce Brosnan's third film, The World Is Not Enough. Let's go and watch it and come back and talk about it. Spoilerific detail. Bye bye. And we are back from having watched The World Is Not Enough. Guys, how did we feel about this one? Uh, <laughs> Steve, let's start with you. So, you know, when you were a kid and you did something really bad and your parents said to you, I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed. I think that's my feeling with this. Um, I'm just going to come out and say it. That's the worst Bond film I've seen since then is forever. Oh, <laughs> the claws are out. The entire, entire problem with that was it was the script. It was entirely the dialogue. It was, I mean, this is Moorera on steroids. It was so utterly puerile. I mean, right from the get-go, from the pre-title sequence, the um, would you like to check my figures type thing. And just at that point, I thought, oh, God, it starts. And it's not even a good joke. It's not. It's awful. And it just continued. They, they ruined what actually would have been a really cool Bond gadget right at the start with um, with uh, Pierce Brosnan kind of introducing it with you. appear to have missed my hidden assets. And then a big explosion comes from his glasses. Um, and it just, I mean, it was the start of the most disappointing pre-title sequence we've seen, I think, so far, which was kind of gutted to me. Because I've always been a big fan of the pre-titles. But this, it was, I mean, London looked so kind of grim and unexotic. And then when you get to the end of it and realise that it's just, it's, it's genuinely there as a massive advert for the soon-to-be opening Millennium Dome, I just thought, oh, for fuck's sake, the commercialization of this film. We spotted it in GoldenEye and, the, and uh, Tomorrow Never Dies, and it just continued. And then, I mean, there were a few, there, it wasn't a complete disaster. Um, Robert Carlyle as Renard was brilliant. That's, I think, the saving grace of this film. He was excellent. Um, and some of the updated music, I like the kind of Mission Impossible-esque take on the Bond theme, the sort of electronic, cool upbeat version of it. That kind of added a bit of extra oomph into it. And the middle section with the pipeline was cool. But for the most part, it went downhill. It came up a little bit and then went right back down again towards the end. Um, we'll go into various sections in more detail, I think. But there was a lot wrong with this film. Yep. Uh, Gordon, I want to hear your take on this one. <laughs> nah, it's good. It's uh, on one of the lower rungs of the, the Bond ladder for me. I still like it though. It's flawed. I feel, and, and it's for different reasons, maybe um, in some ways to Steve. The detractors, I actually like that it shows the mundaneness of London because I don't feel uh, London is supposed to be exotic. I do think there was an amazing shot of the House of Parliament that showed it. I, I like the boat chase. There was, I feel that there's just something really missing with the film, something bland. <laughs> but there's great individual character performances because uh, I thought um, Robert Carlyle was pretty good. He seems to be good at playing real nasty piece of shit characters. If you, um, pardon my language, um, 
like the guy out of train spotting and just is is Renard the anarchist, you know, his only goal is chaos. He's just he's just a nasty character. But I thought even better was Sophie Marceau, who was actually a really good villainess. But it saddens me to see um Desmond Llewellyn depart the seas. I gotta say, been a, a big all-round Bond fan and uh, but there's too much comedy as well, which I'll get into later on. Um some positives, some minuses today. Yeah. Yeah. Fran, your take on this? Um I kinda usually go by what my body decides to do. Um, you know, uh if I'm st- kind of sitting at the ed- on the edge of the couch watching or you know, if I'm alert or in this case I actually started to fall asleep when I was watching the film. I was so comfortable just sitting there. I started to kind of doze off and I thought, oh, I'm I'm bored. I'm genuinely it kinda felt it felt as if someone had set up like an AI and and, and given it the instructions like how to make a Bond movie and then the AI kind of pieced together things that that thought that, you know, would be like a certain type of villain or a certain type of joke (laughs) or whatever. (laughs) And it but being an AI, it just didn't have the spark, you know, it just it just it felt like paint by numbers bond um i i found it to be boring really that's all i can really say like there was there wasn't even bits that like usually with a film it can be so bad it's good and you find bits funny or whatever like i didn't really find there was bits that i just thought, thought were confused and i just like those stupid helicopters with the saws and i'm thinking who ha- is that a real thing i mean Talk about the most impractical solution ever. Like, to, uh, uh, I don't know if it's a real thing, but just there was moments like that throughout the film, basically, where I was either confused or just bored, really. Yeah. When you fell asleep, was that not at all because you stayed up really late last night? No, well, I mean, think about the, with Game of Thrones. Like, when I was watching that, I was watching it like when you're gripped by something, you don't feel tired, even if you've been up or whatever. Like, I actually had, had been asleep not long before you phoned, Steve. Yeah. Um, earlier on because my body clock's all out of wax but I, I was just I think it was just it wasn't the most I'm actually going to find it hard to talk about like I, I don't really like some of the films just, I think are easier to criticise because the stuff that stands out and is quite exciting even though it's maybe badly executed but I just don't I think maybe Bond and uh, uh, Electra is isn't it there was a Electric, couple of yeah. there was a couple of bits there where like Bond showed a real brutal side, um, but other than that, not much kind of stood out to me, to be honest. Uh, yeah, it is a mixed feeling viewing for me. Um, at the time, back in the day, I liked this film, and again, it probably was to do with tied in with the fact that I, I liked the game at the time that came out after it, and I was just accepting of all things Bond. I didn't really know better. I hadn't really. I just thought Pierce Brosnan's cool, action scenes cool, <laughs> uh, humor was great at the time, and it's when you watch it now, a fully grown adult, and you've now we've now got the history of the series behind us to see it in context, and it is, it is paint by numbers is kind of yeah probably the best way to put it. It does feel like a very formulaic to a fault. Um, the one thing it did do that was new uh, was the main female villain. Sort of mastermind was a villain, uh, a female, and I like that. And I think Sophie Marco was probably the best thing about the film. Um, it wasn't too problematic in ways that we've always just spoke about with Bond. That there was points where the film leered a little on Denise Richards. I don't know if it's 
I know that she is down as critically, she was miscast a lot of critics, contemporary critics thinks that she was miscast and stuff like that. I could tell if I thought that if I agreed with that. I definitely think the costume department treated her like sort of, you know a sex bomb type thing you know, she's just there to be leered at. There was a very male gaze-esque thing going on, but it was a Bond film at the time in the 90s that was still that, that was the type of films they were but Plot-wise, narratively, I, I really did kind of lose it a bit. I was struggling to follow some of the some of the machinations and motivations for who was doing what and why and things like that. I liked the power couple dynamic between Reynard and Sophie Marcow, Electra King. Um, I think Reynard actually, uh, Steve, you obviously liked... I, I, I wasn't sure what I felt about his performance. I thought maybe... I think I, from knowing some of the performance I've seen... Uh, Robert Carlyle and the really, really intense performances. I think he was actually a bit watered down more than I would have liked. Um, when you get Robert Carlyle, you usually can get a really, really intense psychopath. And they weren't going for that with this character. But anyways, I didn't didn't click with me as much. It was Sophie Marcow that I liked um, the best. So yeah, it's a mixed bag uh, to, to, to sort of sum that up. Um, where do you want to start then? Do you want to start with that bloated pre-title sequence? We are I think that's a good place to start. Yeah, I mean... What was that, like half an hour? <laughs> it was really long, and it, it, but it was it was implausible as well, because if you look at... I mean, there was a lot of bits, or, or there were scenes where I was thinking Bond would never have survived that, like, because it was an open-fronted boat, and he's driving through warehouses and exploding through them and all this kind of thing. Also, that's supposed to be Q's fishing boat. I mean... Does anybody that, kind of? I think was a bit of weird sort of. That was a bit of weird humour. I think on that part, Bond did just spend twenty minutes banging through London in this boat for to get back to him to go. Oh, that's what I go fishing in. Uh-huh. I can kind of see what they were do- what they were doing there, but it does it comes across a bit confusing. Um, I was getting massive JW Pepper flashbacks. <laughs> that. It was just a speedboat chase where tons of stuff was getting damaged and blown up. And it was Bond chasing a villain. I just thought this is they've, they've rehashed one of the worst parts of the classic Moore. Was it Moore or was it Connery? Live and Let yeah. Die. It was, um, yeah. Um, Moore. Yeah, that, ah, that's right. So it was Moore. They've yeah taken one of the worst parts of his era, and again just sort of brought it into the modern age. That's what I felt that was. It was it was JW Pepper all over again. Yeah, and, I don't know why um, choose retirement fishing boat needs to be able to dive underwater and missiles i mean i don't know what sort of fish he was looking to catch i don't <laughs> told him about i don't know if bond had told him about largo's boat and thunderball the disco volante and all its features it's hydrofoil and all and he's like i fancy one of them just yeah it was completely implausible but i, w- I was thinking it in the back of my mind when i was watching it i was thinking it might be fascinating to slow this down and see how crazy it is because in particular the bit where the boat goes through the warehouse and it explodes as it's coming out the other side you can see on the model or whatever it is they were using the bits of wood and stuff all stuck where bond would be sitting you know like think about that think about all the nails shards of wood glass i mean bond should have been like pulverized into a million pieces into into jelly basically in that seat you know but he somehow gets out it just and then that bit where he goes underwater and fixes his tie. Yeah, you know it's like, oh, come on, you know. I mean, all right. I mean, that's showing the Bond style. I feel uh, 
Oh, do you know what? It was good, though, that Pierce Brosnan actually, uh, he he did um, some of the, he was actually in a boat. I don't think he was actually driving it, but for a lot of it, he was there in the boat in the Thames, so they didn't rely too much on a stunt double. I loved, I, I thought it was quite funny, the initial scenes with Q, where he just sees Bond running through the, the office, like, stop! And and then yeah. he goes off the boat, and he, it's just Q, he just looks like just such an old man, just kind of rubbing his head and despair, you know? Yeah. On the, back to the pre-title sequence, um, I felt like they should have just cut some of the, I, I felt like they could have actually ended it when he abseils out the building. I would have preferred a nice snappier end. And gonna do Yeah. Because yeah. the last part of the pre-title sequence was basically the start of the film. They usually don't have the, usually the pre-title sequence isn't actually linked to the main body of the film, but it was it was actually setting up the main plot, which was I thought was unusual. But yeah, they, they could have cut that ten minutes earlier. Yeah, it just felt I couldn't believe it. I kept on looking at my watch. I was like, "Hang on, is this, have we watched? The, did I miss the title theme? Did the, it went on for quite a while?" Um, yeah, it was. I don't know if it's that. I suppose that's the editing, the director that's chosen that. Um, but I didn't. It was a little little much. They also. Continuing with Brosnan, I mean, this I suppose was set up with Moore, the complete reckless abandon of civilians' lives uh, when he's driving through cafes and all sorts of uh, shops and things in this boat, uh, no matter whose life it could have killed or <laughs> seriously damaged anyone in the buildings and things like that, you know, <laughs> all for humour, it's alright. If you look at what Bond actually destroyed, it was more than like a terrorist attack. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like restaurants destroyed, street shops, you know, but warehouses, like total, it was like Team America or something. It was, <laughs> that was it, yeah. You know, he didn't, as long as he got the villain, everybody else could die. I wonder how many people were in hospital for like weeks <laughs> after that. Do you know what I mean? Like businesses closed, like that restaurant was totally destroyed. The newspaper's headlines must have been all about crazy British spy uh, goes on murder spree in London for weeks after that. But um, yeah, it was uh, bizarre, bizarre. But again, we've seen that already. We we, we didn't criticise Brosnan too much for Goldeneye in Russia, so I suppose we shouldn't hold it up too much to that. Um, well, literally five seconds into the film, Bond seemed right away. I love it. I love... Um, generally, I really like David Arnold's music, and he's, you know, he's not afraid to use the Bond theme in this film, and that's, you know, plus five seconds in, man. He's just walking down the street... You know, that's all you need to do. It'd be like Bond goes in the kitchen to make a cup of coffee. You play the Bond music, just Bond doing something. <laughs> it doesn't matter if he's it's something he's not really doing much. It's just it's just so cool to just see him and and hear the music. And then he's and then about what well, about two minutes later he's leaping out the window. Bond music again. He's, yeah, uh, he's in the speed up Bond music. <laughs> you know, well, that, it, it actually does go to show the power of music because. See if you overlaid that pre-title sequence with comedy music, it would fit too. That's the funny thing about it is that, like, like would it? I mean, we've seen that in the Bond films and we've criticised them. No, I'm I'm saying like I'm not saying it would work. Work. I'm just saying like you you know the fine line between cool suave Bond and complete madcap comedy is a is a strange one, isn't it? Like because a lot of the stuff that happens in the pre-title sequence is actually played for laughs, isn't it? 
even though it's got that i think the music well it's it's that it's it's not really it's what it's the style of bond isn't it it's everything is po-faced and serious what you're seeing on screen to an extent um it's a serious action scene but so things are so taken so far that they become comedic Uh and then it's usually down to sometimes the music to signify that it's actually silly but that's why it's so important not to do it. now that like slide whistle thing or whatever like uh, it's it can it could so easily ruin a bond scene that's what i'm getting at because uh, like you kind of need the music to be kind of badass and whatever like to keep you in the, the feel that there's something serious going on because what's actually happening on the screen a lot of the time is is not serious it's like you it's difficult to take it seriously sometimes, especially here. I think this maybe this film's take with the whole movie. I would say actually took it to levels beyond what I found to be um, something I could believe was actually happening. Like the the bullet in Renard's brain slowly moving through and holding on to hard, like not hard, hot rocks and things like that. There was so many things throughout the film where I was like, "This is completely unbelievable," you know. But I, I suppose we'll yeah. get to that as we go on. Yeah, I agree. I do agree that that's one of the things. There was a a feeling of taking it too far, silliness um, that didn't quite work. Uh, Gordon, you mentioned the music. We'll talk about the music then. First of all, let's talk about the main theme then. Uh, Garbage's theme, The World Is Not Enough. I would say that's one of the high points of this film, actually. I really like that theme. Yep, that, that, that one minute, 30 seconds, or whatever it was. How long was it? Was it about that? I mean, that was a, <laughs> that was a fantastic uh, bit of the film, yeah, because I, I love that theme as well. I think when you, I would get, I'd say it gives an extra half star, uh, but also the combined with David Arnold's, uh, his, his score, I think, did work for this. I actually preferred it over Tomorrow Never Dies. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, and yeah I like it, how they brought back the, the idea of the motif, because I noticed the, the main theme tune motif. I think it was the start of the Azerbaijan theme. Yes. It, I, I don't think we've seen that for a couple of films, using the, the main theme tune as a, as a motif. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I agree. That's a fundamental for me in one of the using using the the theme song within the film quite a bit, and he, he did that, which was good. And I, I quite like the the garbage song. Not I went into more detail on the music of Bond podcast. It's not from music, but they've got they've got the strings there, and I think um, more than anything, it's lyrically. I appreciate it. It's got. I think it might have helped Don Black, who'd written a lot of older Bond songs combined with David Arnold to do some lyrics but it says, it has the line there's no point in living if you can't feel alive and of course Electra, that's one of her big hard hitting lines Renard repeats as well, so that's the sort of thing I like, we've seen that in previous films Yeah, yeah no, it definitely was one of the high points for the film both the theme and the score and the way they tie in together is uh, an extra bonus for me So yeah. I, I was pleased to, to see it's probably, I would say, so far in the Brosnan films, the best score. Um, as a consist, I would say it's a consistent score. I lo- I do love the Golden Eye score by Eric Serra, but with there's caveats there. There is points where it goes goes into the bizarre, as we spoke about on our lengthy Golden Eye podcast. This one was just a consistent good score. There was no cringeworthy moments. There was no moments like in Spy Who Loved Me when it goes into that bizarre. Desert sequence and it goes into comedy camp and things like that. It was consistent, and that is, yeah, I would say that where the film isn't consistent, that was one of the things it was. So I like that. The um, only minor down point in the music I think that I've got in my notes is during the ski scene. There was this sort of, again, I think I flagged it up in one of the other films, a kind of cheesy, romantic 
It was Natalia's theme in the GoldenEye film. They sort of repeated that kind of slightly cheesy romantic Bond and Elektra skiing down the mountain. It was only a few seconds worth, but again, I thought, I don't like that. They could have played something a little bit, a little bit cooler in there. But it's one again. That's one minor point in an otherwise, as you said, pretty, pretty solid, pretty solid score. Oh, so how many Within times my, are we going to see Bond skiing? I mean, like I'm fed up of it. I've got that in my notes as well. I, we don't need another ski chase. They, we got bored of that about three films ago. I mean, I suppose, yeah, I, it doesn't bother me because in the end, it's like what well, you could say that about him being in a casino. Maybe I don't know because it's like a. It's well, not as, that too. Yeah, okay, fair enough. <laughs> but I suppose the well, casino's got that kind of classic hard back. Yeah. One thing I think that Arnold did really well the score as well is he's got the, the classic Bond, this kind of wah-wah sound trumpets, and he's there's even a bit he's got bongos in the background. I don't recall hearing them since maybe from Rush With Love or something the Connery era. It's a, it's a nice classic score, like Tomorrow Never Dies. I think it definitely felt, you know, musically it felt like a... It, it was funny because I didn't think it was too... It was a nice mix between... It wasn't too in your face, but it also was recognisably the Bond style music as well. And I think, Steve, recall you mentioned it had been kind of updated a wee bit. It was almost like there was some good beats and things in there. Yeah, more Mission Impossible style. Yeah, I like Um, that. And bear in mind, I think Mission Impossible was at 96, that first one came out. Mm -hmm. So I think, yeah. And then when did the second one come out? Was it after Uh, this? 99, same year. So yeah, uh, like there was a... I think there was a definite influence there. A definite the influence on the music. The, uh, the main theme of Mission Impossible Two is sung by Limp Biscuit. Uh. Yeah, yeah. I, re- <laughs> I you know I remember actually at the time um, we must have been in, in what second year or something in high school and uh, went on a school trip to M and D's theme park or something like that. Uh, or was, it, was it? Oh no, no, no. It was no. It was Flamingo Land. No, it was the one down in North, like kind of well in England, but wasn't that far south and they had a ride that had that music playing that song from that mission well, impossible take, song. take a look around uh-huh. dun, 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 dun. And it's like take a look talk- around <laughs> uh, yeah it was nuts. like you'd get on the ride and it would start and i remember th- at the time thinking this is such a this is such a good song you know but it definitely had that similar it's got that similar kind of mission impossible feel i, th- I think definitely but it really yeah. took me back to that time that kind of era I know why you want to hate me. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So, yeah. I would say music is a plus for me for this film. Uh, Let's talk about general plot then. The overarching plot for this film. Uh, What's what's our feelings on this? Uh, Gordon, uh, did you like this one from the plot point of view? It's it's Tomorrow Never Dies, actually. Um, Plot-wise... I can't fault it too much. What I really like is is Electra King being this turncoat. The way that um, she's actually quite a convincing liar. It Bond starts to see is see doubts. He starts to have doubts about her, which um, that says something about Bond's ingenuity, and it really says something that M really kind of fell for um, her plight. And her character hook, line, and sinker because she was a friend of her father's, and th- that it's that emotional involvement. It actually showed a weakness in M that it shows that despite all her strengths, M's not 
M is uh, not flawless and she allowed her personal feelings to get in the way, which is something M would always tell Bond not to do. And uh, Judy Dench, you know, was great in this. I mean, she's one of the, although um, there's a lot of weaknesses about this film, a lot of the <clears throat> individual leading actors are good and they're versatile actors. I mean, I'm, if you look at the IMDb and it's got the photos of the, the main cast, and their, their profile photos there, I mean, they're so different to the characters they play. It shows how well they adapt. Like, Robert Carlyle, he's sitting there, he's long hair. He looks like a motorhead roadie or something. Denise Richards, she just kind of looks like a sort of pin-up. Um, Sophie Marceau, she just kind of suddenly she just looks like a housewife or something. Well, but yeah, it kind of says something about how versatile these actors are, that they, are, they can show this different side. And, you know, like I said, um, I, I thought Sophie Marceau was... Just as a great villainess, she was like she was like the first female megalomaniac, and she was she was sadistic. You see her the way that she took pleasure in Bond's pain and all that. You know, it's quite a quite a character driven film. Yep, Fran, what was your kind of feelings on the overarching plot? Well, the plot was really simple. It was basically one oil company wanted to destroy the other oil company's pipe. So that yeah. they would have a monopoly. I mean, it was. I mean, it's it's quite a boring idea, really. I mean, it, most businesses would do a bit of um, cloak and dagger behind the scenes. You know, I mean, they wouldn't try and get a nuclear submarine and blow it up with nukes. Do you know what I mean? Wouldn't make a good Bond film, would it? No, but I mean, it's a pipe for God's sake. It's it's a pipeline. But um, Electra had. Uh, stop me if I'm wrong, but I always saw this that she had Stockholm syndrome when it came to Renard. Like she kind of maybe. Well, well Bond says that. Oh, he actually says the words? Yeah. So that when you're sleep, obviously sleeping then? I might have dozed off, yeah, at that point. But um, aye, the whole... I, I like that. She is a victim in a sense, because people who have that aren't operating in their right mind anymore, you know? And I think as well... I mean, I actually found that kind of B-plot, the whole thing about... Um, the whole thing with M not having paid the ransom or something like that, like that was going on in the background and Electra having Stockholm Syndrome and that relationship there and I found that to be more interesting than the actual plot of the, the actual, pl- you know, the, what they were trying to achieve, I thought was, was kind of banal and a bit secondary, you know? Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I mean, plot wise, I, I, it didn't really interest me that much, I guess, even with the positives, you know, I didn't find it to be, I don't know. I don't, I, I, I don't know. I, I just wasn't that intrigued by it. I wasn't like gripped waiting for the next development to come in. I mean, there was bits that I found to be ridiculous, like where Bond uh, checks the ransom amount of money, doesn't he? And he checks the exchange rate, you know, on a computer. <laughs> I mean, it's, that's boring, isn't it? You know, I mean, like, yeah. I don't know. I just, I felt that way. Th- Thrill and and when he meets with Valentine as well, I found that that whole section to be quite boring as well. And the introduction to Christmas Jones, I found that to be boring. You know, I just wasn't. There was no, no moment where I was like, "Oh my god!" So that's what's going on here. Oh wow! You know, I, it was just. It, it was there, there wasn't really a twist, was there? Like, I mean, it, well, the twist was Sophie Marco. That was your. That was fairly decent. I found that to be. I I even remember this when I was younger, when I was watching the film thinking like for the first time thinking there was something not quite right about her from the start do you know what i mean like it wasn't a secret like it wasn't 
It was it no. wasn't in your face obvious, but it wasn't a incredible like I am your father surprise, you know? No. No. It, if you've watched enough films you kinda of see that see it coming a little. She's something's off about her. I can't remember what point it is that there's a clear signpost, but I did feel as if there was something that kind of gives it away. Like, she didn't she seem actually... to care very much about her dad being blown up. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. that was a part of it. Like, she just was unemotional. You know, her dad had just been blown into a thousand pieces. Do you know, he wasn't just like, it wasn't like he had a heart attack at his desk. I mean, this guy was vaporised, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's probably one of the things that gives it away. Uh, Steve, you obviously... Not as big on the plot. No, they. It's a shame because they they could have done so much more with it. I think you know fighting over oil is actually ripe for it's ripe Bond's material. They it's the kind of thing that they could have taken. I mean, it was probably very timely around that kind of early sort of late nineteen nineties sort of era as well. They could have done so much more with it. And Fran's right, it was kind of dull. The other stuff going on around was actually a lot more exciting. I was more interested in kind of following Electra, her her twist where it turns out that for all that we've been complaining over the years of Bond, uh, with women throwing themselves at Bond after they've been in a crisis situation, and this time she did that to extract the information from Bond and it was him that was played. That was, these little moments were the ones that even slightly not very much, but slightly kept me on my toes. You're right, the actual main, uh, the the whole idea of the fight over plot, over oil pipelines, Russia versus this private company run by the king sort of dynasty or whatever, it wasn't particularly mind-blowing. It was a what could have been a great idea, I think just executed poorly. Mm. I mean, maybe we're not meant to care so much about that. That is backdrop in a sense. Maybe it is we're actually just meant to really care about the characters. Really care about the characters. Um, well, on the topic of characters, Steve, see Renard. Does he live in that fire cave then? <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, what a place to hang out. You know, just a it's like hell it was almost like hell wasn't it it was like the villain is ultimate layer you know i mean it was just emerging from this little doorway with the whole place on fire you know just if you're thinking about if you're a set designer or sorry a scriptwriter at this point i suppose when you're coming up the concepts maybe you're struggling you're thinking well we've seen so we've seen volcano sets we've seen moon uh, moon uh, space station bases we've seen everything from these Bond villains and you're going for that style what else do you do? <laughs> yeah the ultimate... sorry what were you going to say? no I, I, I was just agreeing pretty much like uh, you know where? what's your ultimate layer for a villain going to be? I mean it yeah. just but, but again implausible you know yeah I mean is there an or... office in there? like <laughs> somewhere a toilet you, gonna... you know what well it was set up? up as some kind of religious sort of place where People go as some kind of pilgrimage, wasn't it? That's I, I think what yeah. they they pick up the hot stones or something like that. So it's basically a device to show that he can touch hot things and he's got hands like asbestos that he doesn't feel any kind of pain. So I think that's the reason for the fire. That and think, it looks uh, really cool. I think they kind of missed the point with it as well when they were writing it. It was almost like they they got mixed up and thought that if you can't feel pain, then you're going to be invulnerable. Like his body would still be wrecked by whatever he was doing, you know? Like, he just wouldn't yeah. feel it. I mean, is he, he could break both of his legs and not feel it, but he still couldn't go anywhere. 
yeah, the whole that whole concept didn't work because he was moving his hands. He punched his way through a a kind of box type thing when he was with Electra. So he's obviously got sensation in the hands, in that he can move it, but no feeling. And there was a slightly sort of physiological point of view. Where I thought, hang on, that doesn't work. If you've got no feeling in your hands, you can't move them. Um, that might be possibly be taking that slightly too far. Yeah, and it also possible. Do you think the film is actually discriminating against disabled people? Because, like, I mean, it's it's he's got he's clearly got some kind of disability now. Like he's he's been injured. He's had a work related injury, and now he's become a megalomaniac. (laughs) That is what a lot of I mean people retrospectively have sort of criticised the Bond films for doing that. Um, Essentially, they do show anyone with disabilities usually are always villains. Uh, and that's one of the things you could label it. Um, I think they thought they were going for a unique look, and it is, I suppose, a unique look in a sense, especially the whole concept. I wasn't a big fan of the whole brain slowly, uh, bullet going through your brain slowly. As a kid, I even thought that was stupid. Yeah, it was a nice entrance for Renarda, and a stylistic thing we've seen before with the Bond films is where the villain, this was like what Blofeld and You Only Live Twice, you think he's going to kill the obvious person, but he shoots the guy who's smirking in the background instead. So he doesn't kill Davidov, he kills the, the, the other guy. I don't know who he was from, the, the Atomic Energy Division. He seemed to be a sort of middle man or whatever. But What makes me laugh when I watch those scenes is just that there's an understanding, unspoken understanding, that when he says, shoot him or kill him or whatever, and the guy aims the gun at the other guy and kills him. And it's like, I'd love it if this, there was a silence after it and Robert Carlyle just looks up and says, I meant, I meant this guy. <laughs> <laughs> it's you just idiot. So, yeah. I mean, it's that film, they have to try and be stylish and that's just what they do. But it just always makes me laugh because it's so like, how did he know who he was referring to? Yeah, Sorry, yeah, a, a, meet, a, meet, a meeting beforehand. Yeah. <laughs> there was a there was a bit actually where Bond shot Renard in the hand or the arm and he didn't really react much because he obviously didn't feel it but I, but I think they made more of Renard's abnormality like they have with previous Bond henchmen or villains like there should have been a big payoff at the end like the, the actual climax at the end of the film the battle between Bond and Renard Bond's trying to stop the, the, the nuclear bomb going off there should have been more there. It was just a bit of an anticlimax, you know. Renard could have been used better this film, I think. I mean, you could have had Renard literally like head to toe on fire, running towards Bond, right? like not feeling oh. a single, you know. I, I, I had that with Mister Kid, times are forever. Yeah, I think with Renard, I was disappointed that he was kind of like the final guy will kill at the end. I almost wish he was killed off earlier because I don't feel they used him well enough anyway. And actually have, um, it would have been quite a shock for Electra if she had actually murdered him. It was a twist in the story where she kills him and she is the final villain at death. I think that would have been a more punch to it. Um, I, I think the last act or section on the submarine for me, I, I'd mostly switched off by that point. I didn't really follow, I didn't care. Denise Richards' character is just sort of shouting out expository dialogue um uh it didn't i didn't feel i was really following it still with that um yeah i wasn't sure well it didn't really work for me i think, I think with I, her character the sorry Fran. no you go you go i think with christmas jones they should have given her maybe some kind of strong backstory i kind of 
personal or emotional um, connection, some sort of tragedy that that makes her as desperate as Bond is to stop Bernard, not just that, oh, here's a, a nuclear scientist. I mean, it's good that her expertise helped Bond to... Um, he needed her, ultimately, to, to stop these two co-conspirators, Bon, um, Bernard and Electra, but um, yeah, and I felt the chemistry maybe wasn't quite there between Brosnan and her, it's similar to the way it was with Michelle Yeo for me in the film before. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember disagreeing with you on that one, but I think I agree with you sort of on this one. Um, the only the, she's such a two-dimensional character in this in this film. There's only two things we really know about her. She's a nuclear physicist who looks really good. And people make Christmas jokes around her. I mean, I don't really remember anything else about her. <laughs> well, all I remember is the guys at the facility were upset because she's so professional that she doesn't pay attention to any of the men there. They were, yeah, they were... she's gone with a whole four nuclear bases, and the guy, the first thing that that guy said to the to Bond when he thought he was a nuclear scientist, oh, don't even try. She's been around four nuclear bases, and no one's managed to have a go at her. As if that's that's kind of the main that was that was her thing that was her immediate introduction. Wait, that's, 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 that's a defining characteristic. That's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. Every, every other female character professional in the film does actually sleep with people. <laughs> I mean, the, the thing was, oh yeah, and also I, I feel that the the Brosnan and Samantha Bond relationship is Bond and Money Penny. It's actually what? getting to the point. It's similar yeah. to the way. Um, Connery and Lois Maxwell where he almost kisses her at one point and she's a sort of more of a sexually charged money penny if you like so they, there's a change there from how it maybe was in the mood era it definitely felt they were that was they were trying to bring back that flirtiness and connection and chemistry from the Sean Connery films when it came to money penny in those scenes there was a lot of furtive looks and sort of jealousy that it was clearly going on with that doctor who has a very unprofessional attitude um, you, can, you, know, you can be struck off the, like the medical register for doing that yeah uh, again it's the it's the bond attitude isn't it everyone is just he's so attractive that you just ha- you can't it doesn't matter about your career <laughs> that's how bond just dismisses and laughs off because in the briefing room where um, Money Penny makes some reference to what she got to a bond and bond. You know, she could potentially, I don't know, get in serious trouble. Bond just kind of smirks like that's kind of the bond style. That that's funny. Yeah, I think that's probably when it dates it. I think there's something about all of that. This is the film that he slept with the most women in this film. Again, it's. Uh, I mean, it's not necessarily a criticism. It's just an observation. But uh, obviously, the doctor. And Sophie Markow's character, Electra King, and of course uh, Christmas Jones, which is one of the worst names we've ever had throughout these films. Um, but yeah, it's it felt again back to the Moore era we were with that side of things. It wasn't completely distasteful or anything. It was just you could see what it was trying to be. What year? I was trying to think of what year Lara Croft was a big deal because there was a sort of slight Lara Croft element coming yeah. from Christmas Jones. Uh, yeah, and I wonder if that was. I wonder if that was kind of in the. I wonder if that was even in the costume designers' uh, heads. Yeah, when I they think were so. when they were looking at Christmas Jones, because um, I mean she did feel like, and I feel safe using this because this is actually Juliet's comment rather than mine. It felt like a supermodel who had been fed a very kind of intellectual-sounding script and was just <laughs> reading the lines 
um, as though um, there was no, it didn't feel as though there was any genuine knowledge coming from it, which was a shame because I actually thought the opening, her opening dialogue with Bond was actually relatively good. Um, and there was a sort of little bit of intelligence in there. She kind of picked up on them from the start, realized that he spoke very good English um, for a Russian, um, all that kind of stuff. That, that few seconds of dialogue actually seemed relatively good. And then she went immediately down from there. And you're right, Steve, she was used entirely to kind of explain the plot of the, yeah. or to kind of to explain what was going on. The summary. She was standing there physically explaining how <laughs> the hydrogen pipe, that was disconnected. Therefore, that affected the button up there, which was going to do that. And as a result, this would happen. It was so, like, it, that was, it was almost like she wanted to stop and say, okay, audience, here's what's happening. <laughs> the gas is leaking. Now he's going to have to do this. Okay, start again. And it was that kind of like, it's really, so, it's just a bit much. It happened a fair few times, you know, and I was just like, oh. It was the piece to camera on the news reports, basically. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it was. It was ridiculous, actually, when you think about it, because, I mean, the, the golden rule is show, don't tell, you know? So, it was just, yeah. just that was that rule was ripped up in front of her eyes, you know? I mean, I guess. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I was just going to say, ah, you guys say it would be, um, good if just there was something more from her like a, a strong backstory i think of for example uh domino and thunderball that emotional connection to the villain how her brother was murdered by him there needs to be something like that something emotional there that you know it, it was again it was just one of the blander aspects of the film you know she reminded me of um who was the geologist in, in the, the last yes. Moore film stacy uh, sutton yes uh-huh Interview to a kill. Yeah, very much like that. You know, she was just a she was an expo- as someone someone has said this. Uh, it was an expository character. Yeah. Um. That's yeah. She was just there to to kind of to help Bond, but to explain what was going on to the audience a bit as well. But uh, like, similar to Stacy, Stacy was a bit of a kind of a bimboish type character, wasn't she? Like you would never have expected her to be the state geologist. You would never ever in a million years. I mean, this is a woman who refused to take off her high heels when she was standing on top of the Golden Great Gate Bridge. Do you know what I mean? Like, it just doesn't tie up, does it? I think, um, I mean, you could try and compare it to Moonraker with, is it Holly Goodhead? But Holly Goodhead had, there was more, it felt like more came from her, to her character. She also did more in, in the, the film. She was sort of martial arts trained as well, and she had all these other uh, interesting character attributes that came through. So that's why that one worked, but uh-huh. They've, they've kind of lost that with these recent depictions. I think. I think the thing is with this film in particular, um, it was. It was almost. It would be a big, a much bigger problem if all the other characters had been treated better. But I don't think any character came away unscathed. I think they were all badly written, all of them this time. Like, I, I think you know, the, the, there was obviously more interest with Electra than there was with Christmas Jones. Like there was more substance there, but I think it was just. The characters in the film were on a spectrum of awful this time around, rather than a couple being badly represented. I, th- I just think it was bad writing all round, really. But Christmas Jones definitely is the ultimate example in the film. Well, well, it's like it feels like they've gave her that name to use those two Christmas jokes, especially at the end. Christmas comes once a year. Ho ho ho! That is so smart, so funny. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's the innuendos that were rife in this film. Um, oh, I know. It was, it it was, was every second line, yeah. It, it genuinely was. It, it got unwatchable at parts. I had my head in my hands. <laughs> I did. I just, oh, yeah, I did. 
I'm actually angry about it, I think. I'm actually, it's it's so disappointing. Because even, I mean, the last couple of um, Pierce Brosnan films have been, they haven't been, there have been a few. It's, it's, there's been more than the Timothy Dalton era. I think that's kind of what I'm comparing it to. Because the Timothy Dalton era was so free of any of that kind of puerile humour. But they ramped it up to 100 in this. And it's actually, I'm... I'm actually sort of I'm very angry. I feel angrier than I expected I would at that. Oh, I feel like a, a one-star Diamonds Are Forever's coming out here. <laughs> I feel sorry for old Brosa because that, you know, in his four films, he didn't have the, the original Fleming material. They were all new, um, new stories. And if you think back to, I mean, we, I'm sure we'll genuinely agree in this, the first five Bond films, you've got Doctor No up to Thunderball, fairly well based on the original novels then you get to only live twice and that's the first one that's been a severe change from the novel and that was the first one where i think most people had question marks so that that maybe says something so you got to feel for brothers with that not getting this you know these strong storylines maybe that's not I, I agree with you because i that i would want to talk about brosnan's performance anyway and i think this is a good time to do it i think he is mostly f- great in this film at least i think i like him still he pulls off most of these comedic moments well enough it's just it's the writing that's letting him down sorry Fran, you were gonna say yeah but i think as well the, the thing with particularly in this film there are moments where uh, Brosnan's delivery of the lines it, it verges on it's almost creepy. Uh, there's a there's a, a a way that Brosnan holds himself and looks at people and in the way he says things sometimes, and you're thinking, what a creep. Do you know what I mean? Like, really? I didn't I didn't get that from Morris. What what bit? It's just it's just uh, it's hard to explain. I've noticed it with Brosnan before. Like Brosnan's one of those actors that he can play. He kind of delves, there's a dark side to Brosnan. Do you know what I mean? There's a kind of a dark edge to Brosnan. Similar to Sean Bean, but not quite the same. But there are. T- it depends on, I guess, what he's fed, what he's got to perform with. But, like, it, it, I don't know how to describe it. Like, with Moore, when Moore is saying one-liners or something, it comes off as kind of, like, lame and a bit... A bit like you have an affection for him because it's kind of lame and 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 whatever. But with Brosnan, is it? It's like oh, you get a wee shiver sometimes. I don't know how I to think, describe it. I think maybe it's because he is as a very good looking man. He is just naturally quite super cool, and then it's sort of when he's given these lines that are a bit. They're meant to be still cool, but they actually just come across as a bit silly. It's like. It's like Bond as the sociopath here. Like there, there are moments where I don't know. It's kind of slimy. I don't know how to describe it. Other well, than that. do you think maybe once he? I think usually Brosnan pulls off the one-liners pretty well. But one that he really didn't pull off well was in the pre-titles. The the cigar girl showing him the sheet says, "Would you like to check my figures?" and He's like, oh, I'm sure they're perfectly rounded. Uh, it's just that it's not just the way he says it, but the way he kind of glances it. Uh, he just uh-huh. doesn't pull it off there uh, for me. There was yeah. almost a pause before that where he was yeah. like, do I really have to say this? Uh, oh, okay. And then he goes <laughs> for the line. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I like the, it's the moment when in the ski se- sequence when he's, he thinks he's outrun or got away from the whatever device that was, sort of ski, cha- uh, I don't know what you call those things. 
don't know. Snowmobile with a parachute, yeah. Snowmobile with a parachute, right? We'll go with that. Uh, and they fly. They they've kind of like went off and he thinks, right? That's uh, I'll make. They're flying down to their doom. I'll look down and see my line. See you back at the lodge. And then it's like he almost he says it seriously, but it's almost like he's ple- This camera stays on him, and it's almost like it's he's pleased. His line. He has a half smile. It's like that was pretty funny, isn't it? And then obviously it shows that the parachute comes out, and he's like he goes back to seriousness again. It's just that kind of like, like I'm going to stick with him and just show him pleased at his own one liner, standing on his own, cracking his little joke. <laughs> yeah, different audience. I mean, did do we know anyone? Have we ever met anyone like that? Would we ever do that in a moment of triumph, like a one-liner that nobody's ever going to hear <laughs> you know, on our own? Yeah, I have to one-liners like bond to myself all the time, man. I, I don't think there's any shame in that. Maybe that's just me. Well, I, was, I, 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 I want to hear an example. I'm quite curious to hear examples of one-liners. Like, what kind of thing? If you see a, a spark, you go, shocking. <laughs> do, do, and I always say to myself... Um, Almost every week or something, there's a bit in Dimes Are Forever, my, my least favourite Bond film, where Connery goes, thank you very much. I say that, I'll something I mean, sneak into yeah. the, the lane in front of some, some cheeky driver that's not giving me enough space, and I'll say, I'll just say to myself, thank you very much. Right, wouldn't it be really terrible if that driver had crashed through a barrier into his doom? Do you know what I mean? Like, And you said it. I mean, that would be. I've not the tire slash was fitted yet, but I mean, that's there. There is no shame in using the one light. All right. What about? It's kind of a, I was just going to say it's kind of a shame focusing entirely on the white liners because there were a few in among the crap, a few decent bits of script, and, and the one that the one I suppose in the entire film that stuck out to me was just before Q disappeared. Bond turns to Q looking genuinely upset and when yeah. you're not you're not retiring yet are you and he looks genuinely devastated and that was a sort of one touching moment where i thought they've actually got that right so i think credit where credit's due it was a sort of five second sequence but yeah that, i want to think i think i, I want to move on actually next to q and r uh, before I do, I just want to quickly finish on the sort of this the stuff we were talking about with bras and then that sleaziness because I just remembered something as well that could tie to that. What do we think of those pair of glasses he was he was wearing uh, in the casino? Oh, one of them. Not well. They'd be they'd be useful and you know various things, I suppose. But yeah, do, do you usually go into casinos looking for people with firearms uh, hidden in their? Pants. Well, you know, I could be talking about a work situation where they could be handy. You know, I mean, there's there's many uses for X-ray glasses. Yeah, X-ray pair of glasses. I need them like for say my book research or something. I mean, see uh, the train and how it works. What's the usage? Uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a bit funny, a bit sleazy. I don't know, all 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 terms above. I, I found them to be. It, it was it was just. It was outrageous, wasn't it? Really? If they were used properly, then it might. If it was generally just used to quickly scan the place to see who had a gun, then fair enough. But the fact that you it then cut back to them quite blatantly wearing the glasses and sort of letching at women, you're thinking, right, right, I can see what yeah, I can see why you're meant to be using those glasses, but and the underlying tone of you're obviously using it for <laughs> exactly that kind of it, it's the face, it's the facial expression when he kind of looks at him and goes, oh yeah. Uh, she's not carrying a gun, but I like what I'm seeing. He's got, oh, come on. 
I wonder where the line is between the things that, that are sort of go in the dark things that aren't. I mean, did, were they wearing fluorescent lingerie or something like that? Do you know what I mean? Like, it seems to pick, for some reason, it seems to pick out guns and lingerie and things. Else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the ultimate Bond gadget. <laughs> what the two things Bond needs to see. <laughs> I know it didn't, it didn't explain the tech did it it just here yep here they are I, I, I felt we had to, to talk about that let's now move on to Q then uh, I think there's it's again I feel like the Q scene you could draw it's a microcosm of what I feel about this entire film some great stuff about it and then some really not so great stuff about it uh, the slapstick stuff I'm, I'm referring to specifically with John Cleese's character, I just didn't do it for me. Um, silly, it wasn't funny, it was childish, yeah. With you Q, know what though, film is bad when you come away disappointed with John Cleese? Yeah, yeah. How yeah, do you miss thought... you as such a decent legendary actor like that? Yeah. I thought so the only badly misused. The only part of his well, you actually liked the ending where he shuts the laptop and it's just the look he gives. He's like, must be a premature form of the Millennium Bug. Yeah, so that wasn't that, too bad. That I liked <laughs> it. Was like, but if we're talking about the earlier scenes with Q, I totally agree with you guys. I think he was there for just to be a comedy buffoon and yeah, it didn't do it for me. It's the way Q even speaks to him like a piece of shit. <laughs> I've never seen Q, so uh, like it's not. He used to just treat Bond that way, but he's actually speaking to a subordinate now, like uh, like that. <laughs> like he has no time for him. But yeah, uh, the scene with Brosnan turning to Q was nice, and it was a farewell for Q. But it's a shame that this film and that scene overall wasn't the best Bond and Q scene. But that little moment was nice and touching. We do know that sadly that is his last film. Um, he died, was it in a car accident or something, just shortly after this film? Yeah, just only two weeks after the film. And it, they made out in the film that they'd written his retirement in, so he was going to be retiring anyway. But, I mean, on Desmond Llewellyn, quickly, every Bond film going back to From Russia With Love, barring Live and Let it Die, you know, what a guy and probably just someone who grew up with the Bond films. He's just always been a big part of it for me and... He was he was just Desmond Llewellyn was Q, you know, and it, it just it set the it set the standard obviously for the the younger Q have got in the later films, and you know, yeah, and, it, and it's funny because the whole um the whole um atmosphere of antagonism between Bond film after film Bond and Q it just came about through a decision by Guy Hamilton, but then you've got those touching scenes like there, and then when he helps Bond down license the kill. And it's it's really nice to see. I actually thought um, the way he gave Bond advice, it was one of the many things that, that actually reminded me of On Her Majesty's Secret Service. The only other time that Q actually gives Bond sort of almost fatherly serious advice, it was at the wedding in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. And so I thought, maybe not intentional, it was kind of a throwback to that. And I think there was other throwbacks to that film, which you know I was moving and get onto as well. I feel the same. Um, it was, I mean, it, it it paves the way for John Cleese's character, and it, I never felt it worked with Cleese as much. Um, but yeah, it's it, it was a a nice final scene with uh, Pierce Brosnan as his farewell, and it was very sad that he died just weeks after the film. Um, is there anything else you guys want to get off your chests before we get into the rating? Did they uh, explain I- why they were in Scotland? 
Well, because the I think there was security issues around the main building, wasn't there? Because been... I suppose they they just blown a hole in the building. That is a point. Because I, I mean, say, I, um, yeah. I was going to say the the way they used Scotland's. Um, I mean, everything right down to the the bagpipe machine gun. There was they went for the the typical Hollywood stereotype of the sort of Highland uh, castle weirdly covered in satellites, which wasn't exactly subtle. And then sort of inside with the, the sort of layered portraits on the, the wall. And I, I don't know how I felt about that. Um, well, imagine I mean, it was in, imagine like how you felt about India and Octopussy. It, they basically did the same thing. It was like, yeah. you know. I mean, I'm not, I'm not particularly nationalistic and I don't get particularly upset at perceptions of uh, um, the way that Scotland portrayals of Scotland in film, as a lot of people do. But that felt a little, it felt a little bit strange. It's like they had to really go for the, this is Scotland, um, as if they were sort of explaining it to... Americans, uh, basically, to Americans, yeah. Like, I didn't want to say it, but yes. I mean, if we're honest about it, a lot of the the stereotypes you see in films, where films fall down, is because of the audi- the, the ignorance of the, the general American audience, certainly in the past. Maybe not so much these days. But, you know, Americans very much learn about America. They don't really learn. You know, it's it's not a secret that a lot of Americans have never left the United States and they don't know what... They couldn't point to a place on a map. Do you know what I mean? Like, they, yeah. obviously... It's a lot more of a world society now with the internet, and you know everybody can communicate online more. And but certainly you see that. I mean, I think we'll notice with the later films that dies away, doesn't it? That kind of goes away. You don't see that in the um, Daniel Craig films so much. I'm not sure. I'm intrigued to see. But um... yeah, but, uh, uh, the Scottish connection comes back, though. Of course, I think I can buy into the fact that MI6 would have. Uh, an, an alternate headquarters in a in a secluded place. Oh yeah, but it's, I agree it's not with so much that. Saying. I like yeah, I like the fact they do that, and it's also as a Scottish person, it's just great to see some stuff. But again, it's that sort of overly unsubtle way of portraying it. We criticised it for that style in Octopussy, all stereotypes really condensed in a short space of time just to hammer it in and for comedic effect. It wasn't done for comedic effect here, it was just for storytelling purposes, but still it comes across a little obvious and a little, yeah. 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 It, it looks cool, but you expected them to start passing around a tin of shortbreads. It was one of that. <laughs> Yeah, it, it takes me back actually to the first time I went to the States and uh, that was 2009 and I went into a 7-Eleven and I was talking to someone in there and then this, this other random stranger came up and I was they were like, where are you from? I told them I was from Scotland and the person said to me, are you wearing pants to fit in here? And I was like, what? And they were like, well, do you not all wear kilts over? This person genuinely thought that we all walk around wearing kilts all the time, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, that's probably the kind of thing that, that they that they were doing with this film, wasn't it? Like you know it's Scotland, don't you? You see a bagpipe guy wandering around and you hear bagpipes before before you even see the screen. It's like this is Scotland was getting bagpipes in. Do you know, seeing yeah. Star Trek in Star Trek the Next Generation, right? There we go. First time I brought up Star Trek for ages. But there was an episode in Star Trek The Next Generation that came out in the eighties and there was a colony of the Federation that was based on Scotland, right? And there was all these aliens there, but they were all they all were admirers of Scottish culture, and they were having like caber tosses and stuff. Like, you know, I mean, honestly, it was like the ultimate. Cle- and everybody was walking around with kilts on. 
as well. It was like ultimate. It was almost like if you were to take a tourist's vision of like an Edinburgh tourist shop and just turn it into a planet where you would live. That's what it was like. I know, I know. Um, quickly then, before we get back to the rating, we haven't really discussed uh, some of the minor characters. Uh, Valentin Zakowski made a return. A little more comedic than I probably would have liked. I think the menace from his character portrayal in Goldeneye was gone at this point and his constant comments about, oh, the insurance company aren't going to believe this. Uh... You know, stuff like that doesn't work. I mean, I remember laughing as a kid. So maybe the audience, it's for a different audience. Maybe we're too mature and sophisticated for it. You know, I don't know. But I think I would have liked some of the menace and believability that came with Zakowski in that film. Yeah, yeah. I think they kind of, I don't know. It was, it was... It was the same with Jack Wade. They did the same with Jack Wade. He was a decent character in Goldeneye and then they overused him in the next film and to comedic effect. Definitely, definitely. I mean, it was nice to see him again, but at the same time, it's, you know... It, that was my thing, and I was glad to see him, but then once you realise how they used him, you kind of went, oh, yeah, they could have done a lot better with him. Yeah. Uh, and Bullion and Gabor, they were not really... didn't really do anything. They were just tough guys. I don't really... <laughs> I, mean, maybe I was weren't. surprised to see Goldie in there. I forgot he yeah. did any acting because he was a sort of big trans jungle drum and bass producer at the time. So I suppose he probably, he's got that sort of villainous look about him naturally. I think he does genuinely have those teeth. Yeah. Um, so I was I was intrigued to see him in there. But he, nice. he, 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 did his, he did his bit. It was kind of your yeah. pop culture reference at the time, wasn't it? You know, yes. it's having someone who was popular or whatever. <laughs> Steve, you mentioned Davidov, who is Electra's head of security. I f- I wonder why Bond felt the need to shoot him immediately. That was one of many really cold moments from Brosnan. And this, the biggest and one of the most profound moments of a cold Fleming-esque Bond of the entire series, man, was right at the end when he, he shot Electra in the head, I think. Yep. And the a nice sweet um the great dialogue there, I think, but the, he just shot her in cold blood. He shot Davidov in cold blood, which I felt he didn't really need to do, but he'd obviously deduced that he thought that Davidov was the insider and he obviously hadn't quite realised about Elektra. And, I mean, Brosnan in this film, he kills two men within about two or three minutes of the film. I mean, like I said before, I mean, some of his films, Brosnan has a big body count. Mm. Yeah, sadistic bastard. Overuses getting, his license to kill. I mean, is 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 the Bond series at this point becoming more of a? Is Bond become more of a general action hero in a, an era of Mission Impossible, etc.? Yeah. That's the feeling I'm getting from the Brosnan era. Yeah, it's almost. I always got the feeling that they wrote it with the knowledge that they're going to make a have a game come from it, and you have to have lots of crazy action and murdering. Uh, <laughs> no spying. Like, plenty of the you get plenty of the Brosnan grunt. The more films of this, oh, every time he feels pain or, or he, he can be doing anything. It's this. It's like you got this Roger Moore grunt laterally, especially when he got old. It's, it kind of gets to me. <laughs> you just hear it too much. I think. Yeah. All right. Uh, is there anything else? Or are we going to move on to the rating? I'm going to say that. Um, All right, Fran, you go first. Well, it's because I'm going to say my traditional and obl- obligatory, I have said everything now. Right, okay, Steve. <laughs> Which I say every cast. The only, the final character I just wanted to think flag up was M, who we actually saw in action in this film. Is that the first time that we've seen M, the character of M, doing anything 
kind of spotlight when, when she was seeing her being captured, seeing her using the the battery from the clock to activate the locator, seeing them actually doing a bit of spy work. She's normally, or the, the character of Emma is normally someone we see sat in an office at the start and then the end of the film. So I think seeing, seeing her in action was pretty cool. Uh, yeah, I, I kind of have mixed feelings on that. A part of me thinks that it sometimes stretches the belief. I mean, they already did, so maybe it's fine. You just have in this film it fits, but it it really stretches believability for me when the boss is is really in all these perilous situations and things like that, and it's another person for Bond to save, um, because it just doesn't feel like that. It just so far from how it really would go down, I imagine. But yeah, I mean, they started the film off with. MI6 being blown up so they already they were trying to to really change things up with that alone but uh, Gordon what were you going to say? Yeah but um, they did really go out in the field apart from when he rocked up in his big submarine and you only lived twice I think but the, oh, yeah. the last point I was going to make before the rain was I think there's a, there's a few nice we maybe some intentional some unintentional references to Honor Majesty's Secret Service you've got you've got for only the second time Q giving Bond some real heart-to-heart advice, you've got a long scene with Bond and Electra having a sort of romantic ski together, and then then getting uh, almost killed in an avalanche, just like Bond and Tracy were. You've got, um, now, again, this one, the jury might be out in this one, Electra says to him, have you ever lost a loved one, Mr. Bond? And he seems genuinely um, taken aback, and he can't really answer the question, I think. Is that is that a, a wee Tracy reference getting in as I well? thought it was too, yeah. Oh, and of course the title. So, um, the title, The World's Not Enough. And um, it's mentioned when Bond um, is seeing about his coat of arms and his ancestors and and, and on Her Majesty's, he gets told by the, the bloke in the office, your family motto, Mr. Bond's, The World Is Not Enough. And he tells him where it is in Latin. So, Because obviously they didn't have a real... A story left to base this film on so I really really like the title itself, it's very very appropriate. Yeah, okay alright then, let's move on to the rating. I think I'm going to start this one um, for me it's a three star film there is many things that I like about this film from a point of view of it is just a fun action film and if you watch it from that point of view there is a lot to enjoy some of the action scenes are great. Um, some of the one-liners work well. Some of the humour does work. Um, you know, I, 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 the main thing for me is I like the notion of the female mastermind villain. And I think they even could have pushed that further uh, with her being even killing Raynar maybe or something, doing something shocking like that. Um, so, But overall, I'd give them points for that. The music was fantastic. Uh, David Arnold's score was great and the, the main title theme as used as a motif but also the theme alone was great so yeah I, I liked those parts about it the comedy didn't work for me and also the sleaziness that started really coming through in these films uh, harking back a little too much to the Roger Moore era um, and I thought Reynard was a little disappointing I don't, I don't feel from a Robert Carlyle perspective it it worked completely for me. I don't know if it's the casting choice. I think the storyline itself was a bit messy and mishmash. Bullet in the head, slowly coming off. These silly things didn't work. So, three stars for me. Fran, your thoughts on this? <clears throat> um, I'm going to go for a three star as well. Um, I just felt like I'm going to go back to my Bond by numbers statement. Pretty much like that. It feels like it. 
you know, you could you could sit down and not really have to engage your brain. And it's a it's an action movie, isn't it? Really, you know, it's got a, there's it's not an offensively awful film, but it's also not very interesting. Basically, that, that that's I don't know. Um, it could have been so much more than it was, but it's not. It's not by any stretch the worst film I've ever seen either. You know, and I think when I'm giving it the three stars is for the 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 craft that goes into making a movie that's coherent in some form because it is you know it's a start to finish film with characters in it and set pieces costumes explosions special whatever i I don't want to take that away from the people that that worked on the movie you know um so yeah it's a three-star film but it's definitely not by any stretch my favorite bond film at all wouldn't even get onto like a top 10 probably or top (laughs) you know it it would be below top 10 for me for sure Certainly, probably certainly. probably below top 20 <laughs> or yeah. whatever top 19 yeah. or whatever how before, many. yeah before i move on i just quickly saw my notes bond has a a grapple thing like a batarang i just thought that was ridiculous but anyways if we uh, picked up on that uh steve we'll go to you next i've been thinking about this i'm giving this a two out of five and I think it's the disappointment that I've been left with. I think if I'd come to this movie as a standalone film, if I hadn't seen all the others and, for example, was going through ITV4 and just turned this on, I think I might have enjoyed it. I might have found it a bit cheesy. But as a standalone action film, it's probably actually all right. But what I think I've got is the benefit of having seen the previous 18 films and knowing what kind of should have been there and how it could have been. It just, it was a letdown. I think that's annoyed me. Um, the characters of Electra and Renard, for example, were, I thought they were, they were the high point of this film. And the, Stevens, I think you said the power play between them was great, but could have been a lot more. You were absolutely right that she probably should have been the last remaining character in the submarine, for example. Um, there were, there were points where it was all right. I thought the, the music, probably um kind of helps save it that garbage soundtrack the garbage um title track helps save it that at least claims it back uh, a star or two but beyond that it was that script it just let me down so much there were so many points in it where i thought that was unnecessary the sort of puerile nature of i don't mind a, a stupid joke here and there i'm quite a fan of stupid humor but where it's consistent in a film that could have been so much better it's just, it was a letdown and it's left me kind of angry and disappointed at what it should have been. So for that, I was going to go, to, I was thinking I was toying with two and a half, but it's left me, I think, so annoyed that it doesn't deserve that. So I'm going with the lower of them. I'm going with the two. Yep. Uh, I kind of felt from your criticism for Ray that that was probably the best it could get. I was, <laughs> yeah, that makes, that makes sense. Gordon, what was your final rating for this? 007 cinema experience this film like I say it's towards the lower end of my scale and I'll get a 3 I think there's plenty of stuff to get excited about there's the great score by Arnold at times there was pretty good dialogue and sharp exchanges it's sometimes not so much there was a one or two clever plot twists like with Elektra becoming you know Really, the fact that she deceived everyone, including Bond and M, Bond to a lesser extent, uh, and just this very strong and powerful woman 
in a Bond film, very powerful. You know, she's she was pulling all the strings. Renard was working for her. Like I said, um, good the M had a weakness that was exposed in a personal level. There's enough classic Bonds. I like Bond showing his wits, for example, like when he notices Mr. Billions got the bomb, he's got a split second to react and he gets him and Christmas out. He probably saves Valentine's life. He notices when, when he's with Christmas inside the, the pipeline that the bomb is like him, so it's going to be a small scale. So he says, don't touch it. He just decides in a split second. He, he notices the froth in the glass. He immediately realises what's going on. Do you know what I mean? Um, you know, there's that, you know, great kind of classic Bond feel and the, you know, the bow tie and stuff. I did like the boat chase. I, you know, the, a, a chase sequence, not the best chase sequence. I liked him and I'm pretty sure at the end him and Christmas get shot out of the um, submarine out of the torpedo tube. That was like Bond and You Only Live Twice. I kind of like that. But yeah, things I'm not liking are similar to you guys. Some of the humour doesn't work so well for me, especially with, with R, John Cleese. Especially, I gotta say, I think they really ruined the Zakovsky character in this. He was such a menacing presence in Goldeneye. He was a dark underworld character, but in this, he had cartoonish remarks. He looked cartoonish. He had a little beard for no reason. He didn't look right in the suits. They just totally ruined that character. Unfortunately, I've got to say, and and just in general, I feel with this film, there there's definitely something missing, and I can't quite put my finger on it. And it's there's a blandness that I don't, I just don't get drawn to watch this film as much as a lot of the others. But yeah, on the whole, three out of five, would definitely watch it again. Okay, so quite consistent there. A lot of threes and a two. Yep, one of the one of the misses, I would say, of the franchise. Um, not completely a dud, but certainly some issues with the film. All right, that concludes our viewing of Pierce Brosnan's third film. We are over the halfway mark now. We've only got one more to go for Mr. Brosnan. 2002's Die Another Day. And uh, I'm sure that'll be a fantastic way to finish off his <laughs> his time as Bond. I'm looking forward to watching it. Are we going to yes. get back to a down to, more down-to-earth um, Fleming-esque Bond in this film? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I don't think there's any guns fired, no invisible cars, anything, no, no silliness. It's all. I'm sure, it's all... Yeah, I'm sure we've just. Yeah, I mean, we've just forgotten all the good stuff about it, really. And uh, yeah, and let's uh, keep their um, podcast going. And uh, we've, we've obviously got the Spotify now and the the Apple Podcasts where we're, all our material can be listened to as well as the SoundCloud. So good yes. times ahead. Spider yes. Yep. Uh, we've got some more articles you've written. Uh, some some articles, Gordon. Fran, of course, churned them out last month. Uh, I'm hoping to start get back on that. But we've also got a couple. We've got Tomorrow Never Dies. Will go up soon as well. The Golden Eye one, an epic two-hour podcast, is up for our audience's listening pleasure on all the usual platforms. Uh, you mentioned Apple Podcasts, Spotify. So they're all there for. For people to check out and check out the website capiche.online search for it find it create a profile start typing into the forums um we'd love to see comments and things like that so yeah it's it's all it's all going now all right guys thanks for your time thank you uh for for this viewing 
and this spoilerific discussion, the Bond Daft Project will return for Die Another Day. Thank you, bye-bye.